0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to head of performance at Catalan Dragons, Rich Hunnicks. Thanks to you, to episode 219 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really excited to get on Rich Honnicks, who is now Head of Performance at Catalan Dragons. So I've known Rich for quite a while, um, specifically got to know Rich when he was at the RFL, when he was Head of Performance at the Rugby Football League. And they were going through their tender for a um, wearable partner, For a league wide deal, uh, which would span across all of Super League clubs. So I got to know Rich really well, but uh, I got to know a lot in this episode too that he actually used to work at the English Institute of Sport. Um, Worked at Leeds Rhinos. So Rich has done tons across his career and has has found himself in France, which is really exciting for him and the family. So we discuss a lot about that in this episode. Um, Starting off, we discuss uh, World Cup preparations because Rich was head of performance at RFL, like I've just mentioned, which culminated in a World Cup final uh, this time last year. Then we discussed the move to France. Then we discussed the league-wide deal, uh, the wearable deal, and uh, why, that, why that was uh, put in place, and the support that was um, that was structured around that deal. So, really exciting uh, episode with Rich. Really glad I finally got a chance to speak to him. I can't believe it took this long for me to get in touch. But I hope you enjoy the chat with Rich Onix.
1: Whatever message the players got from the head coach and from myself, was consistently the same we're completely transparent about what we're trying to do so if i was saying very very simply we're going to need to run fast today guys i need max effort from you i need to see you really pushing the numbers to get some speed exposure the coach was saying the same thing he wasn't saying oh well just do your best lads you know have a go feel your way into it he was saying no no this is what we need to do this is why we need to do it and we're completely across the same message
0: this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by eccentric so eccentric are a sweden-based company and is a developer of the groundbreaking flywheel training tools the k box and the k pulley and since its founding in 2011 eccentric products have gone on to be used in major league baseball major league soccer nfl nba a number of uh, other leagues around the world including the epl where leicester city chelsea and arsenal are among their customers so just to give you a brief bit of background on flywheel training with the k box and the k poly so backed up by multiple academic research studies it's been shown to increase strength training effectiveness by not relying on gravity but the inertia of the flywheel. So that improves the efficiency of training programs while lowering the total cost as compared to traditional training methods. So if you'd like to know more about Eccentric's products, the K-Box and the k Pully, head over to their website, which is eccentric.com, and that's spelled E-X-X-E-N-T-R-I-C.com, or follow them on Twitter or on Instagram at go underscore eccentric. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU-STEP, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimise return to play for running-based sports predominantly. So, unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small, synchronized, high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry, and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazier and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website, which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Rich Hunnicks. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace of Performance podcast. So I'm delighted this afternoon to welcome Rich Hunnicks, who is Head of Performance at Catalan Dragons. So welcome to the podcast, Rich, finally.
1: Thank you for having me, Rob. Yeah, it's been a while, so I appreciate you having me on.
0: I hope you didn't think I was... Um... I was avoiding you, definitely not, 100% not. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the list of uh, big hitters that come on and thought, oh yeah, I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet, maybe, maybe <laughs> seven years later. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I get a text message now, I appreciate it. It's um, yeah, We've known each other a while and uh, I've enjoyed the, the previous editions and it's uh, it's pleasing to be uh, regarded in the company as so many other guys that have spoken on here and uh, some pearls of wisdom that I've got from them.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us your your story from, you know, maybe starting way back and then and then to the present day.
1: <laughs> yeah, way <laughs> back. I'm getting old now. Um, I'm <laughs> currently at Catalan Dragons, probably work in reverse order. Um, prior to coming to Catalan's, I've been here for a year. I was at the RFL as head of human performance, the Rugby Football League, and that was a role I encompassed working with the English national team, and all the age grades. So it was pretty privileged to go to the World Cup, take the team to the final there, work with uh, a great coach in Wayne Bennett and the other support staff with England over a three-year period. Prior to that, with Steve McNamara, who is now my my boss at the Dragons. Um, I had two years at Salford Red Devils when it was a relatively new franchise in rugby league. And prior to that, seven years with Leeds Rhinos working from really from junior grades under sixteens, eighteens, reserve grade, and then three really lucky years with a first grade team that were winning a lot of trophies. So um, I did a short stint with the English Institute of Sport, working with GB Men's water polo in that early days at Leeds Rhinos. And prior to that I worked across a number of sports with modern pentathletes and rugby union uh, with a with a very young George Ford was one of my first Projects and that was an exciting one and pleasing to see him develop now. But I really worked with youth all the way through to senior grade, did my apprenticeship, a lot of voluntary hours, a lot of um, blood, sweat, and tears to, to apply my trade in an applied setting. Um, I graduated from Leeds Beckett prior to that, or Carnegie as it was known, um, in, in sports science, and then um, yeah pursued probably in tandem with the early stages of my career. My UKSCA accreditation, I hung my hat on that in the early stages and worked hard to get that and became accredited and running parallel to my professional career is also my UKSCA career where I've developed on to becoming a, a tutor, uh, an assessor and also now a member of the board, a board of directors and vice chair. So that's been something that I've adopted as a big part of my development over the time that I've been applied applied coach uh, covering a lot of areas in in rugby league primarily but uh, other sports also
0: Excellent <laughs>
1: Yeah it was um, a really good time exciting time with Mark Simpson who's now over in the, the NBA and um, some, some guys that I, I still have a lot of time with and I, I call good friends I'm based in Manchester and I, I got the opportunity to work with water polo just into the 2012 cycle two years out really from that from that olympics and um, an unbelievably talented group of guys who hadn't really been exposed to strength and conditioning um via their pathway prior to probably my arrival it had only been minimal exposure and uh, there was a set of challenges there for me to learn the sport and um for me to work with athletes that were very, very different uh, body type to your typical rugby or rugby league player at the time, you know, talking about six foot seven, six foot eight swimmers who could, who could absolutely fly through the water, but, uh, you know, put them in a gym based setting and it wasn't their, wasn't their home nation a little bit like putting me in the swimming pool. You know, you look, look a little bit uncomfortable, but it's a new skill and uh, an area that I felt with them at EIS that, through with the guidance of, of guys like Mark Simpson and uh, Nick Chad was around at the time, um, you know Neil Parsley as well, guys like that. You, me, relatively young, uh, they mentored and steered me through looking after that group for a period. Yeah.
0: And you forgot the big award in the summer. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'll tell just people just my career. <laughs> and then lead off with I don't know, win an award um just just yeah. the, the only reason the only reason i mentioned that is because it's sat next to me i've still got it from the um, summer. Yeah, or,
1: uh, yeah. well yeah i was wondering where that had gone yeah so um i haven't actually seen it yet because i live in france um, yeah yeah no i was i was re- really privileged this year to be um awarded the elite sport coach of the year for the UKSCA. um you know there's some Outstanding practitioners out there in a number of sports, and uh, yeah, pretty grateful on that. It, it was a it was an exciting week that one for me personally. I'd, I'd gone through some challenges coming out of the World Cup with England. I'd, I'd decided to come to France. It's a gamble. My family were moving with me to a country where we didn't speak French. We don't speak French, and uh, all pastures new. And the team, and then we'll talk more about it further on. Weren't performing at the start of the year. Um, really turned round and we, we won the semi-final of the cup competition in Rugby League the Challenge Cup in the UK uh, and probably in my, my, I felt one of the best physical performances of any team all year um, and, and they dominated that game and then that very evening I, I sacrificed being at the UKCA conference where I, I love to attend that to see friends and uh, fellow professionals and learn a little bit from the guys there I sacrificed that weekend really to be with the team at the semi-final and, and they didn't disappoint they played superbly and then to receive that award that evening unknown to me I'd gone to bed actually that night because it was night prior to the final to the semi-final that um, I woke up and my phone had gone and I'd had a few messages from, from colleagues saying oh you, you've got this award and you know to, I thought well I've put myself out there now You know, and then fortunately the team played well and I didn't look like a complete Muppet, to put it in my northern ways. So um, they look pretty good and, uh, yeah, very grateful for that and and anyone who was involved in nominating and and putting that to me this year. It's uh, very, very humbling. Thank you.
0: I need to get that award to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I haven't got any others, so I need it. Yeah, I need one of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's take it back to before the World Cup. So the build-up to that World Cup, what was the expectation from a, an internal point of view leading up to that? Was it to win it?
1: Yeah, in, internally within the England setup, with the quality of players that it was lucky enough to work with, we felt we had every opportunity to challenge. And every, anything other than a final appearance probably would have been a big disappointment for us. Um, certainly felt that through the preparation that we put in, meticulous preparation to the tournament that we were set up to be, um, to have every chance of going to the final and winning, as it turned out. Yes, we, we made the final against Australia. Anyone who follows, if even if you don't follow rugby league and you're a rugby fan or a practitioner, if you get a chance to see the semi-final, World Cup semi-final, which was England versus Tonga in Auckland, uh, it's one of the life experiences I'll never forget as a big game goes. Uh, you know, sea of red, sea of Tongan people in Auckland. I've never heard anything as loud. And the team came through with really a last minute win to get to the final. Um, and we, we played Australia in the final. I haven't watched the game back from the final. It's a bit of a blur. But the abiding memory for me was uh, being on the touchline as Sam Burgess came off for a rest and we're walking down the touchline as uh, one of the centres, Callum Watkins, broke for the try line and he just got ankle tapped and you can see right behind it. And there was a momentary rise of, he's broke through, we're going to win this game. And within that nanosecond of an ankle tap, probably the realisation that we're not going to get this. Um, And, you know, it's fine margins in the game itself. I came away very disappointed, we all did but probably felt that it wasn't through the lack of preparation, physical preparation, management of the players that we'd lost the game. If we'd gone a bit longer, I felt we, we probably were a stronger team, but you take your chances and that's the way it goes. So, um, you know, I came away on review of the tournament from a physical preparation perspective, thinking... Actually, yeah, I've done the players justice, which is what my job was in that setting, to make sure they had everything they needed physically to be able to perform to the very best. So um, it it was pleasing back back through the months and months of planning when people think who aren't in the industry, well, England play seven or eight times a year. What do you do for the rest of the year? Anyone in our industry knows that really delivery is probably the easiest part. Um, The preparation that goes into what we do and the planning is the key, I would say.
0: So that meticulous preparation that you mentioned, what kind of things, what kind of work were you doing on the on the back end before the players even got there to make sure yeah. that you had the best chance?
1: Yeah. The the first message here from me is probably that we always tried to base the program around basics done well rather than anything particularly Hollywood. So I'll break it down in terms of monitoring player welfare in the tournament and setting that process up. We trialled a couple of different systems and different methods of collecting our data on what data we were actually going to collect over the two years prior. Um, And we tried to chop away anything that was noisy or ineffective in our practice. And that was a collaboration between the medical staff, the lead physiotherapists, the other performance staff, and also engaging with the clubs and working out what the clubs were doing day-to-day, week-to-week throughout the year so we could actually make some viable comparisons of the data we were gathering and and measure the players um, accordingly um, based around what they do week-to-week, day-to-day normally. So the monitoring system we had was relatively straightforward. We used Smarterbase um, as as our collection platform and our display platform. Uh, it was very effective for us, but we weren't collecting a lot of metrics. It was quite simply, and I, I'm very, very transparent about it, knee-to-wall, which gave us a really good indicator for the medics, um, a, a fundamental sit and reach and a grind squeeze from the physical metrics. And then from the um, subjective scoring, we had an upper and lower body soreness, which is quite typical. We had an energy levels, a stress level, and a mood a mood score um, and sleep quality as well was in there. So out of those five or six, and I'm reciting this from a year ago now, we were able to determine fairly quickly the state of the players and their readiness to train. In order to be effective day-to-day in a camp environment, I monitored that whilst the data was being collected rather than doing it by via remote device. We'd ask the players to come through a certain window Um, actually physically have a conversation um, with the player whilst we're entering the data really on their behalf. It wasn't prompted, it wasn't cued, but it was, you know, give me your score, here you go, Um, and then we could react accordingly. With the physical screening, we immediately had interventions ready should they score outside certain parameters or be visibly, visibly down on certain markers, so the medics would immediately work with them on certain interventions and correctives to to probably define what was stiffness and what was actually a lack of readiness to train. And that, for us, f- saved a lot of firefighting. We knew the guys were ready to go. If we couldn't get the markers back to to baseline with a little bit of corrective work, then, then we'd look at modifications to training and, and, and the load accordingly. But And a lot of the mood score, the wellness and the sleep monitoring – really just encompassed then um planning forward planning week to week on what we thought we would be doing and what we actually wanted to do and being 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 reactive and proactive to the stresses and strains of a tournament and the long haul travel that we had in there. So long haul travel to get there and the internal travel that we had week to week in a tournament. So that was our um day to day process. Um and I can't stress enough that all the data in the world is is great, but if you can't use it effectively, particularly in that high pressured environment, you can't make quick decisions, and you can't be evidence to the athlete that you're using the data effectively. Actually, how useful is it? So, um, a really, really key part of keeping it simple, which is which is an old old saying I know, but it, it was very effective to us. The other elements prior to leading into the trip we we're away for eight weeks a bit of perspective here we traveled internally in australia or to new zealand every week so we had a, a reasonably long flight at the end of each week prior to the next game so we didn't have an easy schedule in that respect so a lot of the work went into traveling comfortably traveling effectively and managing our nutritional strategies around our travel um Anyone who goes frequently travels, as I now do in my current role, knows how hard it is to eat and hydrate effectively when you're in transit. So a big emphasis on that. Um, very, very lucky to work with Andy Kasper um, out of Liverpool, John Moores, and his work and his detail around our travel strategies, including our, our jet lag protocol or our avoidance of jet lag protocol, our ability to provide players with food effectively in airports through doing our homework. We recied everything that we did on the trip, um, including, and WhatsApp became a great tool for that, which was providing players with a travel plan on the day of travel, an eating strategy on the WhatsApp group, an advice line on how to hydrate and eat effectively. And because we're working with good professionals, they generally followed it to the letter and we had minimal problems with anything associated with that. The other part that's worth mentioning is that I travelled to Australia two years prior with England Academy, and part of that process was actually a case study for the World Cup, which was how to train and prepare post-long-haul travel for an international rugby league squad. And um, a lot of my findings from that actually formed our practice for the World Cup, um, and that will be published all being well later later early part of next year that will be published Um, so anyone who's got interest in that that will be published as part of my further studies and um, it informed a lot of what we're doing so nutrition strategies, yeah, travel avoidance of jet lag, sleep um, sleep at the right times, use of simple supplementation um, use of melatonin to assist with sleep, we didn't go as far as things like white light um, didn't feel like that was Probably warranted or part of our budget plans, and and it let's be really plain about this. England Rugby League isn't a sport with a huge budget line, um, so being realistic with the money that we had to spend, what could we what could we do effectively? And simplistic interventions like compression wear for travel, high quality compression wear, worked well for us. Um, yeah, managing hydration intake, monitoring hydration and um, making sure that we reacted to the data that we gathered day-to-day, week-to-week for the guys, helped our training plan and our periodization through the eight weeks to peak at the final. Um, then come on to the Hollywood stuff, as we would say, and let's go down the marginal gains route. You know, everybody everybody out there loves a bit of social media now. It, it seems to be the, the go-to for people to promote what they're doing um, One of the things I did look at was the opportunity to sleep better and effective sleep whilst we were on tour. So we visited a number of hotels in the recce. We selected hotels with suitable bed sizes, and we selected hotels with a lot of natural light as part of our process. Um, We also collaborated with a company, a bed supplier, who provided us with mattress toppers and pillows that were heat dissipating for Australia at that time of year to allow the players to cool and to be comfortable in transit and sleep. Uh, It was a mixed, it wasn't enforced um, intervention. We didn't insist to the players that they did it, but a number of the players liked the idea of having bespoke pillows uh, and mattress toppers, which um, I think I'm going to give John Bateman, one of the squad members, a lot of credit. He hugged onto his pillow for eight weeks like you've never seen a man. So um, that, that made him comfortable, that helped with sleep that to me was a little win in in making him recover and be fresh to perform. So other players, however, were more than happy with, with the normal hotel bed and, and the normal pillows. But it was just something that allowed them to, to individualise what they did, but covered a base for us in terms of what is the most cost-effective and easiest intervention you can have in terms of athlete recovery. Well, it's a quality sleep, and that was a big part of what we We push for throughout the tournament
0: what uh what company did you go for for the compression garments no reason to ask is there's so many out there um it just might be good for people to know what you went with if that's all right for sharing
1: yeah absolutely um i've long been an advocate of body science who are based in in brisbane in australia um i believe they produce their australian made garments i believe they produce the best quality fitted garments uh, I've been you know, an acquaintance of Body Science and the, and the owners of Body Science for a number of years through the sport and uh, it made sense based on player feedback and I'll put it out there, other companies offered England a lot of complementary product and you see this all the time. Uh, my feeling was, and this was the same with all of our supplementation that we did, was we wanted the best possible product rather than the most amount of average product for the players. Our values with the England team were let's give them the best. So if it means going out and finding the best supplier, in my opinion, and based on player buying and feedback, body science allowed us to do that. And I think the team is still using, they are still using the garments now. Um, due to the quality Um, and if you've got that whether there's evidence on a research paper or there's a placebo effect for me it has value if the players are buying into wearing and um, you know acting accordingly to the intervention that it requires so that that was a reason really for going with in, in over that over that period yeah.
0: So another question going back to the readiness side of things so you you weren't doing anything via remote device. They weren't filling the, the questionnaires at home because you wanted to get face to face and ask them to what well, to create the conversation in in front of you guys. Well, was that was that yeah. the only reason for doing that, or was the other reasons for not having them do it remotely?
1: Yeah, it was. It was the main driver. Um, I've over the years that I've been coaching. I've been exposed to a lot of different technologies and in the rugby league role, was approached by a number of companies who promised the world via remote device and apps, etc. But if you've got exposure to, if you've got your athlete on tap or athletes and we were all living in a hotel together, an opportunity to see them and speak to them, you cannot, in my opinion, be having a conversation driven off the data. Because no matter what you do, if you receive a sheet of data, and I've had one today at the end of training in the current environment, it is just a sheet of numbers. Until you probe further into that data and actually ask the individual, you don't really get the true story because there could be any number of reasons, for example, sleep disturbance could could have occurred. It could be agitation. It could be overtraining. It could be dietary-based. It could just be they'd seen a scary movie and were feeling anxious overnight, as daft as it sounds. Or it could be they've got a newborn child in a home environment and that sleep is severely affecting what they're able to do and produce. Without asking the question, then how do you really know and how do you make informed opinions? So that one-to-one, even if it was 30 seconds or 40 seconds, was more than valuable and be able to look them in the eye I got more information from that and was able to make a decision on whether the number or the feedback was worth acting on or we could manage it and and develop the program accordingly as we planned. So that's a primary driver on that. And, uh, you know, also engages the athlete with the coaches. So uh, on many levels, which and they know we care as well. Some of our guys in that environment needed a cuddle. Other ones just needed to be told to crack on. Um, and others sometimes just want to tell you they were missing home or or, or or all about the worries, and you can't do that by a remote device, no matter how good the, the app or the intervention proposes itself to be, in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. So on that on that role as head of performance at RFL, how much involvement did you have with the management management maybe not the right word management of the what the clubs were doing? and how that was fed back and how that was integrated within what was going to come back to hopefully winning the World Cup with England?
1: Yeah, it was a big challenge over the two and a half years that I was in that role that ultimately the players are club players paid by the club. We're not not paying them centrally in rugby league. So it's a different ownership to the rugby union model. Um, A lot of my work in the rugby league was based on Trying to support the club-based practitioners, offer CPD learning opportunities, an opportunity to share without being deemed as competition or, um, you know, overly overly, uh, enthusiastic towards what they were doing or critical, which is every program runs differently at every Super League club. Every head conditioner or head of performance has their own views and ways they want to manage a player. What I felt I never did was tell a club or an individual how they should manage a player. But I did want to open dialogue and hope that they'd share so that we could effectively manage their players safely and return them back injury free as best we could. And you see it in all the different National governing bodies, I know the FA have the challenges, the RFU have their challenges. It's fairly well documented in, in the press, the Eddie Jones regime and, and the injuries apparently associated with that regime. Now, I know from being inside that with Rugby League that injuries happen, number of drivers, number of triggers to injury. Um, it may be due to many factors, but creating goodwill, supporting the clubs where we could, offering opportunity, ultimately a lot of these guys that were working in those positions had come through pathways as I had. So I knew them, I know them through the game. You see a lot of each other in rugby league week to week. And uh, it was certainly a challenge, but gathering then data from the clubs, also in the NRL and the Australian competition, to give us some headline metrics and measures through the GPS and through the wellness monitoring that the clubs were doing to actually give us some baseline data, some norms to look at. Um, and we were, year on year, generally working with the same core of players, which helped, and that allowed us to form some opinion. But the um, the RFL role, the Rugby League role, was um, very much... Um, a political learning experience um for me and it developed me in a different way and a different gave me a different understanding of looking at athlete preparation through a different lens of and i have it now in my current role i will lend my players to national teams and the best you can hope is they they get looked after and they come back in a good physical state prepared to train and that was i hope that the the guys may listen to this and um you know, across the league and would agree that I was always very, very careful to only offer what I could do, be a man of my word, which is a key principle in, in, in our industry, I believe, be a man of your word and actually offer the feedback, give the feedback and the data, be very transparent about what we gathered and why and what our training plan was and why over the period that I was, I was in that role so that um, we could work together moving forward and ultimately you know it was it ebbed and flowed and it was a challenge but it worked fairly successfully again going back to simplicity in, in our GPS metrics, our wellness monitoring, our readiness to train approach and our medical care of the players.
0: So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Rich, hope you're enjoying part one. So in part two, we discuss the uh, league-wide wearable deal that Rich was a big part of when he was the Head of Performance at the RFL. Uh, The intricacies around that, how I was involved, the support structures that were built around that and why it was in place and what the bigger picture was for that wearable uh, league-wide deal. But just before we do get into part two with Rich, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So, Black Box are a specialist gym manufacturer based in Belfast, in Northern Ireland. So, they do gym fit outs uh, across the world from Dubai to America to Australia and If you are interested in a full gym fit out or just some extra bits to add on to what you currently have, make sure you check out Black Box and they can be found on Twitter and Instagram at BLKBoxFitness. And you can visit the website BLKBoxFitness.com. So a super group of guys who will sort you out no end with some fantastic equipment. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So, The Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud based system from anywhere in the world. head over to the website uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on twitter at hawkingdynamics so let's have a little chat about the league wide deal that we were we were both heavily involved in obviously you more heavily than me but with the the wearable uh, league wide deal why i know that's been going on for quite a while now with the rfl for various different reasons but what was that process like and why did you come to the conclusion you did And do you feel it was the, now on the other side, do you feel that it was the right thing to do when you were with the RFL?
1: Yeah, it's a great, it was a huge project for the Rugby League and the governing body to continue with centralised provision of GPS services. And it was prior to my tenure, um, an agreement had been reached. And at that point, the three or four years preceding, um, my appointment at the RFL, I'd been delivering day-to-day in Super League clubs as a strength coach and sports science uh, delivery um, with a delivery role. So as many guys in Rugby League know, you, you're working across multiple modalities. You you really are. You're covering strength, conditioning, sports science at times. You, it's sometimes difficult to be to be a real specialist because you're covering different areas. And I knew firsthand with the GPS system about the challenges with it, not only at my, in my environment, but the other clubs and speaking to, to my peers and all of the feedback that and the experience I had said to me that we need a system and we need technology in the sport that allows us to collect data effectively efficiently and every time without fail to allow us then to spend time actually analyzing and acting upon the data let me ask all the practitioners out there that are having a listen how much data do you actually get that you don't do anything with and i bet the answer is if you're really honest, you really honestly really dig deep on it is there's loads of loads of noise there that you you'd love to do something with it but Either you don't have enough staff or we don't have enough infrastructure in the club or we don't have enough budget to cover that or we're prioritising other projects. So there are loads of variables there. So, But we were fundamentally finding that even the basics of the data we had, it was taking so much time and effort for the individual to actually get that data to a point where it was usable, reliable, valid. Um, And there's there's a whole other conversation to be had there about about GPS in that area, maybe for another day, but um, we just weren't using data effectively due to technical issues with our systems. So having had that experience, I felt it put me in a a really unique position to maybe steer the governing body to something that might suit the practitioner's needs more effectively. Um, And I did my due diligence on this. I spoke to A high number of the Super League practitioners at the time asked for written feedback, asked for opinion, uh, visited clubs, heard firsthand, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly of what we're doing. And um, that really then informed my thinking and my decision making to move towards an alternative supplier at the time try and continue with a league-wide deal, something that was going to be more cost-effective, quite simply, for all of the clubs involved and participating. There was a consensus across the clubs in the Super League that from the heads of performance and head coaches that they would continue with the technology, whether it was as a league-wide deal or independently, but ultimately independently the costs would be far higher. So it made sense to a sport with Limited budget lines in every club that the cheaper or the more cost effective option would work for all of the parties. That was something that was made above my level at uh, chief executive level based on um, director meetings, etc. So um, we merely informed them and the heads of performance of what was available. And it ultimately, it was a club decision. It was a club's decision to choose the mode, um, the provider, and the path that we travelled down. Ultimately, at the end of the process, Rob, I, I wasn't, I was wasn't bothered either way because I was I had a system with the England team. It worked effectively for me. I knew what I wanted from it. I could I could drive the data as I needed it with that system. But um, now, having been a year into that, I think we're a year, maybe nearly two years into that system, um, and that centralised agreement. What I can say is that um, the staff that now work for me and collect data, gather data, um, work actively with our GPS system on a day-to-day basis, find it a really, really effective tool. Um, Then they're able to actually manipulate the data as they want and credit, credit to each club using it differently. But certainly the staff that are working with me now find it an effective system. So... In, in highlighting in summary of all that, it was um, a pretty turbulent process, lots of different opinion, but I think the consensus and the agreement was made by the clubs rather than by any one individual. Um, and it considered a number of factors. So moving forward, we have technology that we feel is is beneficial to, to us in the club. I certainly do in the club I'm now in. And I think centrally there's certainly been... Um, no issue, and from speaking to the guys at the governing body, no, no kickback that it, any any wrong decisions were made. It's certainly just um, just a, a development as we we move down our, our pathway in professional sport.
0: Mhm. And in terms of the, the other stuff that was planned on the back of that league-wide deal with the yeah. pooling of the the, the the Super League data, is that something that's ongoing? And again, from your new perspective, well, newish, a year in uh, in the club. Is that something that you still support, given you're on the other side of the fence, so to speak?
1: Yeah, we've got. We've, there's a number of shared projects going on. Um, ben Jones, Doctor Professor Ben Jones, beg his pardon, is heading that research and innovation for the RFL um, as part of his uh, work with the Rugby League, um, and another project's are ongoing there they're being developed uh, the data's obviously being pooled centrally it's anonymized it, it's meaningful in terms of the feedback we get we're so fast moving in the sport it's session to session week to week day to day match to match that quite often with the research that's out there it really high level stuff um you get the answers too late. The the question's been asked and, you know, by the time you get the answer, you've you've won a cup final, hopefully, you know, you've been in a grand final and you think, I don't actually need that anymore. And What I know the guys are working on is giving us some meaningful feedback um, on central projects. For me, that's absolutely great. And when it comes, it comes. Um, I'll absorb it, take a a message from it, you know, enjoy that information and see how i can use it within my program am i hanging on the edge of my seat waiting for it worried about it or am i stressed about anyone sharing or taking my data no not really because i'm really happy to share anyone comes knocking on the door and says can you tell me what you're doing yeah of course i can because for me a lot of our work is not rocket science where anyone who says they have got new stuff out there is in fitness and strength conditioning, is probably kidding themselves a little bit, or you know, is a is, is is just liking the sound of their own voice. In my opinion, we're all using the same things over and over. You know, um, it's how you apply them to your group um, and and making making your group uh, making your model fit your group rather than your group fit your model. I think if that makes sense to get that logically in my mind, so I'm happy to share. Um, And being on the other side of the fence, yeah, when we get information back on that project, brilliant. We use it um, as we're all picking up things from from research as we go. And there's some great stuff coming out of various outlets around the world, academic, applied collaborations. The more of that, the better. And the more of it that we can use and is actually applicable to the day-to-day workings that we have. Rather than a lab-based project, um, and I think there's a lot more out there now, particularly in rugby and football, that we can use um, the better for me, and that's only going to enhance how we care for our athletes and and the strategies that we implement day to day.
0: Cool. So let's bring it to the present day with with Catalan. Um, well, actually, talk about the present day. The move. The move itself. Was that, how did that come about? Obviously, I'm guessing it was a link between a, a previous, um, the previous coach taking you along. How was that move just, just from coming out of the World Cup to I'm guessing you went straight to France? Did you come home first? What was that like for the family? Was that a super stressful time for you?
1: Yeah. It's, I, I bet every S&C guy in, in the world looks at the job boards probably every other month and thinks, oh, that looks like a great job. Oh, there's a job over there. And the nature of the industry is that we're probably going to have to move in elite sport or high-level sport. We're going to have to move around the world at some point to pursue various opportunities. Yeah, I was approached by Steve McNamara, who's head coach at Dragons and was previously the head coach with England. I was really flattered to be approached by him. He knew that the World Cup was kind of an end point in a a cycle for me but I was undecided about what I would do moving forward and uh, he just just approached me with the offer of leading his whole programme, supporting him in transforming a club that was struggling Um, and six months prior, um, just go back a little bit in August of that year I'd been offered an opportunity at Brisbane Broncos with the guys that I, I regard very highly there and I was actually getting married the week that I got offered that role <laughs> um, and super stressful. My wife, bless her, said, yeah, I support you. We'll go to Australia. But we just couldn't quite agree at the, at the end point. And it was it was no one's fault. It was just um, wasn't meant to be. So I've got two young children, they're four and six. And um, my precedence and priority was for A, to be professionally challenged and enjoy what I'm doing, but also for my family to be settled and my wife to be to be happy because family family is probably first in my line of my line of thinking. Secondary is my professional career, my athletes that I work with, and um, what I can do in 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 the sport to make my athletes better. And then, you know, if you're getting it in that order, you, you're probably doing it the right way, in my opinion. So, um. When we weren't going to Australia, when the French opportunity came up, we thought, well, actually, it's nearby. It's a different challenge south of France. There are plenty of worse, worse places to live. So, again, my wife supported that that um, decision to move. And it was a big decision because I don't speak French. I do a little bit now, but I um, didn't speak French. And um, it's really coming into an unknown, a club that were fighting at the bottom of the league the year prior. Wasn't taken on a champion team. It was taken on a team that weren't succeeding. So, really, a big gamble to go out of my comfort zone, working with an England team that was winning. You know, working with headline acts, big name coaches, staff, guys that were the big hitters to go and work with a French team that perceivedly were, you know, could be down and out the following year. I suppose. So, uh, I came straight back from the World Cup. I had five days at home. My kids recognised my face, and then I went off to France for a week. Um my wife was still working at the time as a teacher and she she did incredibly well to keep track of my two and look after things at home whilst I gallivanted around France. And I realised pretty quickly the scale of the task down in France. Um, I had a week back at home at Christmas and then really from January the 1st, amid jet lag, fatigue, um, emotional turmoil, you know, missing family, not feeling settled, and um, I bedded in in France, and I actually lived with Steve. Uh, we shared a, a flat for the first nearly three months in France, and it was probably the best thing I could have done because we lived, breathed, and slept trying to transform the club. Uh, you know, we got on very well. Uh, credit to Steve uh, as a coach; he stuck to his word. And yeah, if you if guys out there find a coach who's going to ask a question listen to the answer and then empower you to make the decisions to develop the areas you need to, then grab onto that with both hands. And I've got that with my coach. Um, he's very, very supportive. He lets me have full autonomy on the program and it's, it's worth a million dollars really. Um, and we built a trust. That trust in the early stages was pretty well tested as we went in the first 11 games with two wins the preseason was completely disrupted, the very small preseason that we had with, we had 17 out of 30 players at the World Cup, so they all arrived late for different nations. Um, and it was really, really, I'm going to use the word schmozzle, it was just chaos. Um, and we're fighting fires all over the place, but we stuck to our principles, stuck to our beliefs, which is sometimes really difficult to do, being, you know, veering away from what you believe is probably very, very easy to do. And it's probably the hardest thing to stick with when you're finding it tough in strength and conditioning. You might have players with injuries, you might have things that aren't going your way, i.e. results. But the message we gave to the players was stick to the process. Um, That was probably a message that was driven into me by Wayne Bennett, probably six months earlier. When I told him, or even, not even that, a month earlier, when I told him that I took this opportunity, Wayne had said to me, look, whatever you do, stick to your principles. You're good at your job. You're a good practitioner. You know, the players believe in you, but don't compromise your principles. And um, Steve Steve backed me on that. And through sticking to my principles, my high standards, my expectation, uh, we came through the other side of two from 11. We made... The top eight in the competition, which was vital to be playing with the the top teams, and then the cup run that we had um, got us on the map really in terms of going to the semi final, and then to win the Challenge Cup final in that year is probably probably a turnaround that no one expected, and um, you know ultimately pretty pleased with that we achieved something from from an abyss and from a tough place.
0: So when you say stick to the roses, what was the overall philosophy from within the club, within you and Steve? And how were you translating from what he wanted to see on the pitch to what was going on in your sessions, whether that be on the field, in the gym, um, you know, looking after the players outside? How were you making that connection?
1: Yeah. The the first key to this is that whatever message the players got from the head coach and from myself was consistently the same. We're completely transparent about what we're trying to do. So if I was saying very, very simply, we're going to need to run fast today, guys. I need max effort from you. I need to see you really pushing the numbers to get some speed exposure. The coach was saying the same thing. He wasn't saying oh, well, just do your best, lads, you know, have a go, feel your way into it. He was saying, no, no, this is what we need to do. This is why we need to do it. And we're completely across the same message. The same for me technically and tactically as a head of performance. I had to absorb a lot of the way the coach wanted the team to play, where he wanted them to look and what his expectations were. So I molded the program really last year around the team becoming lighter, leaner, and fitter Um, and what we didn't try and do and I would tell this to Steve repeatedly was try and do everything at once we agreed that we could be lighter and leaner therefore more effective and quicker around the field more effective with the minutes we could play I tailored all of my work around getting the team fitter Um, stronger was important last year but it wasn't our absolute priority it's become more of a Prevalence in our program this year. Um, we play week to week, there's 28 games in, in the competitive season as a minimum. Um, you know, periodizing strategically, tactical periodization, use what phrase you want to make sure that we were still developing in the first half of the year and not regressing um, and not, not only maintaining but developing was something that had to get buy in from him. So training volume, regulation of training intensity, making sure that everything was, was on par. So primarily, first up was fitter um, and not compromising on that. And then secondary, secondary, being stronger through all of the process, the key thing and the key message, the headline message was, if we're not getting better from doing something, whether it be stretching, I'm going to throw foam rolling in there, Um, whether it be lifting a weight a certain way, whether it be running a certain drill, if it wasn't making us better, we were critically reflective of what we are doing and not being afraid to say, no, that's absolute garbage or not useful for our group. Let's cut it out and do something that is effective. And through being pretty robust in in that process and being pretty, um, probably the phrase is probably, pretty robust personally as well to take a bit of criticism I was happy for the coach to say you know I don't like that I don't want it to work like that you know rationalize with me tell me what you want and why and I can understand it and that helped us you know develop thick skin for for both each other and bounce ideas around that would develop the group and as soon as we started winning the winning games and the players realized that Things were effective. Process was effective. We weren't just doing stuff for the sake of it because everyone else was doing it. We held our nerve um, and, and we were performing. That you know, you ultimately get a massive buy-in from the players. And once you've got that buy-in, it, it's invaluable because you could you could ask them to do you know go outside and walk around on stilts. If if you've got buy-in, they'll they'll do it in in the sport we work in. But is walking around on stilts outside effective? No, it's not a good use of our time because we don't do that in the game. So why are we doing it? You know, it might be the latest phase or research paper, but stilt walking isn't for the Dragons. You know, it's a, a bit of a daft analogy, but hopefully everyone understands where we're coming from with that. And every intervention that we have or do or daily process or periodization strategy is based firstly around what's out there in the research, secondly, my applied experience and the coach's applied experience, and then um, also what we feel the group respond to and the athlete feedback. So put it all together and hopefully, you know, with a bit of good judgment and um, experience, we get, get a good end product, which we seem to be doing. Um, we don't know this year. Time will tell. I'm not going to say we're having a great pre-season because that's that's a big statement. We're just working hard to try and put ourselves in a position to win again. And if we can do that, we'll, we have a chance. So
0: So, is so. there anything in particular, you mentioned stretching and foam rolling, there. I don't know if that was just coincidence, but is there anything that got binned? Anything specific that just was just not for you, not for this group, not for this time? Um, oh, great
1: question! Difficult to remember, really. Um, yeah, from last year. But I, you know, when I walked in the club, I will put it right out there. The S and C guys would get the group together and go, "Right, boys, foam rolling for five minutes." And I, I just looked at that as a very, very simplistic a five minutes spent that was five minutes that they could have done individually. I have nothing against working soft tissue via foam rolling or trigger planting, etc. But that's something that the athlete, for me, should take ownership on individually. So five minutes spent chit-chatting, some guys doing it effectively, some guys doing it ineffectively, you know, touching a quad for three minutes, going onto a calf, really only working one leg, not the other. Just looked at it and thought, we have so limited time in our competitive season with the players why is that five minutes well spent? So um, I, I basically, yeah, that was one. It got binned. And I said, I've got no, no problem with you doing it, but you do it prior to the session. So we allocate time for the guys to do individual preparation, which may seem really common sense to everyone out there. And it is simple, but then we would replace that five minutes with something that linked effectively in a functional manner to weightlifting session we're about to do for example so if we're on a lower limb session predominantly lower body strength session where we're working through mobility and dynamic movements and derivatives of the lifts we're doing that would get them into effective shapes and positions within that five minutes and prepared to lift yes take effective warm-up effective preparation and adding value to what we're doing rather than just doing things for the sake of it so probably that was one um, you know making sure and then the other thing was making the training week flow so we weren't repeating on Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday what we'd done on Monday we we're looking for a different avenue to prepare the players to move for example to be effective in what we delivered that kept it fresh in the players minds we uh, break it down really simply if we're doing um if we're doing hurdle-based movement preparation on Monday, uh, would we then do something that was a little bit more dynamic and plyometric on the Tuesday? Would that fit our model? On the Wednesday, would we do something different, et cetera, that fed into our themes? I have themes running through everything that we do here. We have that now in pre-season. So uh, our pre-season currently is um, Monday is our speed. Agility and Evasion Day. So we theme our warm ups and our preparation around that. Um, Tuesday, we have simple skill and individual recovery, preparation, development. So we will theme that around weight training, fitness work, which may be off feet, individual yoga, stretch, manipulation, treatment. Wednesday, we have a volume day. So our warm up is quite linear because the volume of a uh, majority of our running is linear on a Wednesday. Thursday, individual recovery, and then Friday we have a chaos day. So we look at multi-directional warm-up, an eclectic mix of different approaches, and we work those themes through our weeks and our days to give the athlete a different variety of um, exposures, a different stimulus, um, and also allow each coach to develop. So all my guys have an ownership on a certain area. They provide the pathway. We critique each other's pathway, and hopefully then – we all become better practitioners rather than just repeating same old, same old year on year, week after week, month after month. Because uh, let's be honest, it it gets boring if that's what we're doing. And if you always do what you've always done, we'll always get what we've always got. So that's probably it, Rob. If I I can't think of anything else I really binned at that point, but that was probably one of the fundamentals and 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 a key a key thing is it is all about the fundamentals done well going back to that
0: happy days well final uh, little topic that I want to come on to and that's the UKSCA and it's just to get a bit of an insight into why you felt you wanted to get involved or need to get involved and just to give a bit of an overview of where you see the industry and the organisation and and where it's going and where where we're at and where it's going
1: yeah um the UKCA, for me, as a young coach, provided a, a focus point for me to hang my hat on not the only way of doing something, but a really safe, sound and technical um, technical pathway that would develop me. So going through the workshops, meeting the guys who'd been in the game, in, uh, in the profession a lot longer than I had and learning from their experiences gave me real assurance that I was delivering safely and effectively as a young coach and I think the UKSE accreditation stands for that still that it is an entry level accreditation which gives you a framework to develop to be a better coach. Um, I certainly don't think it's an end point, the accreditation, it's just the start of a coaching journey Um, I develop week to week, day to day with the different players and coaches that I work with and it's exciting to do that but having a foundation of the UKCA so accreditation appealed to me and I felt it gave me credibility when I was developing as a coach and I think coaches that still pursue that have a, a level of credibility that it shouldn't be disregarded as it led me further down I, I like the people in the organization I also saw that elite sport wasn't particularly well represented and I, I had an ambition to be to develop as an an elite sport coach and wasn't particularly well represented with the UKCA at the time. So I I pursued the option to become, uh, on application, a a tutor and then an assessor. And I really enjoyed that process because I'd had some negative experience with the UKCA in the early days as well through the assessment. I found it pretty difficult. I didn't pass it first time. Um, I don't mind putting it out there. And I know a lot of people, the pass rate is is fairly low, and it's a tough accreditation to get. Um, and I wanted to be part of developing other coaches and supporting that process, what, either via a workshop. And my preference really is uh, the periodization workshops because I live and breathe that stuff. I love I love delivering it. I like sharing. So, and then assessing, giving people a good experience of the assessment and being fair with them, and giving feedback that was constructive. So, and it's been exciting that there's a young. Um, um, and really knowledgeable bunch of tutors, assessors around the industry now who are involved in UKCA and it's always growing. In terms of the board, to get voted onto the board of directors was was really humbling and pleasing. The board's evolved. Pete McKnight led the board for a number of years brilliantly and um, Sarah Kilroy, who's involved in the administrative side of the business, does far more than most members of the UKCA would ever understand um, she really drives and supports the function of the organisation we now have a board that's a fairly diverse spread of academic and professional or applied sports coaching uh, headed up by Chris Bishop who's the chair and to be part of that group that's really embracing a number of projects and, um, and pushing forward the boundaries of what we can do with supporting coaches who are in any line of sport in academia or young fitness professionals that maybe want to be involved in strength and conditioning or would like to use the title and use it effectively. The developments that are going on with Simspa and um, that are happening there are all exciting for the industry. Um, every coach and every individual will have a different pathway there's no right or wrong but being able to go to a a reference point in that pathway whether you choose to be an elite sport general population amateur sport you know leisure trainer they're all very 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 valuable in the industry we work in um, and they should be embraced and it allows a, a reference point for all of those members or associate members or individuals interested to be be supported. And the, the most pleasing thing is through the work that's happening um, is the way that we're, we're now able to share what we're doing. And there's been a huge amount of effort gone into that. And if I'd say to anyone out there who doesn't know what the UKCA is doing, what the headline projects are, would be either pick up the journal and get a read or drop an email to the office and we gladly you'll get a response from the office or speak to one of the members or or one of the board about the projects that're ongoing because we're all there trying to develop the industry and get the industry and the practitioners the status that they probably deserve from when i first started when it was it was really regarded as oh you'll do that for free because you're not really qualified well Actually, I am really qualified. I've spent as much time at university as most doctors, so why shouldn't we be regarded as specialists? Or if I'm not that well accredited, I have the opportunity to develop to become accredited and qualified um, and to support the applied practice that I have. So um, hopefully in a nutshell, that that sums up an exciting time for the UKCA and the projects that are, um, are ongoing and we, you know with the advent again of social media we're able to share that um, we, we're very very conscious as an organization that we're not going to please everyone but um, in terms of trying to develop the intentions are very 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 good willed and there's a lot of opportunity to contribute if you're out there and you think i'd like to get involved with a project or have an opinion if it's a constructive opinion this is one, I'll give this one to everybody. This is one my mum used to tell me all the time. If you've got nothing good to say, don't say it. Well, probably right. If you've got something constructive to give us, anyone, um, I challenge most coaches out there would be happy to hear it because constructive criticism or constructive advice can only develop whatever we're doing. And that should go from a weights program to a conditioning session to a policy to a league-wide deal to a research project to a governing body's um, headline objective for a year or so or for a three to five-year plan. And if there's something constructive to be added, bring it to the table. That's what we're all about, I think, at this stage with a young dynamic board that's really trying to add to the work that's been done previously.
0: Love it thank you for that appreciate that um so where can just to bring it to a, a bit of an end and honestly really appreciate the insight from the World Cup to what you're doing at Catalan to the stuff on the kCA which I think is really valuable for people to hear especially from someone inside the inside the machine obviously like you are but where can where can people contact you on social media what's the best place YouTube Instagram. I, I,
1: yeah, I, I'll be honest with you, all listeners out there, I don't mind a bit of book face, but that's more family stuff. Um, I'm not a massive Twitter guy, but probably, yeah, at Rich Hunnicks, which is H-U-N-W-I-C-K-S, at Rich Hunnicks, you know, DM me on there. I, I'm not up to speed with Insta. I'm too busy running after kids when I've got some free time, you know, and uh, my daughter would tell me more about Insta than I could tell you. But, um, yeah, at Rich Hunnicks, um, I'm always happy to connect. I really value um, everyone's opinions out there. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting times. Um, Anybody who wants to come and see me at the Dragons, be involved, come in the summer, get a suntan. Um, One little story for, for everyone out there, all the young coaches or anyone aspiring. I had a young kid who came for 10 days voluntary off his own back. He, he contacted me through a through a friend, a, a good friend and practitioner, John Noonan, who's at Everton. And uh, he said, can I come spend 10 days with you? I just want to watch. I want to be involved. I'm happy to coach. I'll wash the water bottles, whatever you want. And um, so I arranged for the kid to come, um, young man to come. Um, he funded his own trip. Uh, I put him in accommodation through the club as a favour. Within a day, I realised he was one of the most hard-working young fellas I'd met. So he came and stayed with my family, um, got involved with my life down here in France. And um, subsequently, he, f- he left after the 10 days. The players loved him. He embraced the environment and we were able to offer him a job at the start of this year and give him a, f- really, a really quality fir- first-time, full-time opportunity um, so just giving up his time and showing that level of enthusiasm paid dividends for him. So I'm always willing to connect and help wherever I can. So sorry, long answer to a short question. No, that's uh, class. yeah,
0: that's class. It's yeah. Great to hear, superb. And there's, there's, like you said right at the start, there's worse place to live than uh, in the south of France, especially <laughs> for your first job. Jeez.
1: Yeah, exactly, sir. So. Yeah, hundred percent.
0: But no, thank you very much, Rich. It's. Um, i can't believe it's taken this long to get you on but really appreciate you coming on and uh agreeing to agreeing to give up an hour of your time in on an afternoon so yeah thanks a lot mate and uh we'll keep in touch
1: more than welcome thanks rob cheers mate
0: thanks thanks mate thanks for tuning in to episode 219 of the pacey performance podcast so firstly i hope you have a fantastic christmas and thank you very much for all your support through the last 12 months Secondly, big thanks to Rich for giving up his time and taking us through the World Cup, the move to France and also his role at the RFL. And thirdly, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Black Box Fitness and Eccentric for sponsoring this episode today. So the podcast could not run obviously without some fantastic guests that are happy to come on and share their wisdom with us but also for the sponsors that are kind enough to support the podcast and allow it to run in its current form. So have a fantastic Christmas and I will speak to you next week.